Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott, a clinical social worker and improviser from Naples, Florida. And today is our New Year's Eve special for 2023 as 2022 comes to an end. And today we have a very special guest. He doesn't need much of an introduction, but he is an improviser, beloved by many people around the world. He coaches so many teams around the world. He's a filmmaker. He's an actor. He's a poet. He's a magician. And you can find him at the Magic Castle this Friday night. Anyway, he's my good friend, Jay Suko. Hi, Jay. Is this your card, Margo? Margo, hi, what a tremendous intro. Thank you for those warm words. Most of them true, I think. I think they are true, too. And we did an interview several years ago um, when I think I first met you. And we don't really remember when I first met you, but I think you were doing this thing called (laughs) 10 Minutes with Jay or something like that. And uh, well, it was, yeah, we were talking about when it was that we that how we met and I don't think I knew you before the interview I don't think uh and then yeah I was doing these series called 10 minutes with and it was featuring different people all around the world and the the pandemic had had a hit so we uh we had some time and I reached out to folks and you and I have done a couple of those 10 minutes uh yeah we put it on uh YouTube and and I think they were live over Facebook at the same time uh, and it was great. I got to play with people all over the world. So very, uh, a silver lining. Yes, it certainly was. I don't know if we'll go live on Facebook today. It might confuse Good. me too much because. <laughs> I no, then we have to. Then we have to. We have to go live on Facebook. So, so I've got to attribute you, Jay, with giving me the names of half of the people I've interviewed. And this is going to be like my 140th <laughs> podcast now. So you've wow. really. Um, built my uh, repertoire of improvisers all over the world and it's been really wonderful but I've been a student of yours for a very long time over two years now whoa really it's like two and a half and and people say you should should mix up your teachers and I say booey to that booey to that But you, but you also take different classes too, too. Like you, and you have taken classes for years and years. So mm-hmm. I think there's 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 some sort of validity in taking a class with someone you connect with. Also, at at a certain point, when you've studied with several different teachers, then it's like maybe one teacher resonates more with you than than another. But you still open yourself up to to other teachers and classes and learning. I do. And I resonate with that. I completely resonate with that. So let's go back to the beginning when you were growing up in. Wait a minute. Don't tell me <laughs> you were a little farm boy. I I think I think it was outside of Chicago. Am I right? Yes, that's correct, Margo. Uh, but I your grandparents, up- your grandparents. And let's talk about them now. Your grandparents hailed from. Well, my dad's parents were from Minnesota, a small town called Austin, Minnesota. They were farmers. And Austin is, um, I guess, best known for the Hormel meatpacking plant and makers of Spam. So yeah. Uh, my yeah, my 
dad's side of the family all pretty much stayed and and lived in Austin. Uh, And then my mom's side of the family was from uh, Michigan, from a a town called Niles on the southwest part of Michigan. So uh, my my mom and dad met on a blind date and the people who set them up didn't stay together. But my mom and dad uh, ended up uh, staying together and getting married and settling eventually into Glenwood in this subdivision that was post uh, World War II, like the 1960s, it started really building up um, the freeways. Let's talk about that improv, about the history of of Chicago transportation and roads. So there was these highways that went throughout the city and allowed folks to go into the suburbs. And there were trains that led into the city. And so these suburbs popped up. And one of them, my parents were one of the first people to have houses in it. And then there was a whole, growing up, there was a whole set of friends about my age in this subdivision. So I grew up in about 25 miles south of Chicago. And did those kids like you? Did they play with you? (laughs) (laughs) Do they like me now? Uh, No, no, no. When you were a kid, when you were a kid, because you were an athletic kid, you like being outdoors and playing sports, right? Or indoors and sports. Yeah, anytime I could get outside, especially and play sports, we did. So we would play baseball in our uh, on the street in our yeah, in our neighborhood. Yeah. I, I had a basketball rim, so kids would come over. We play basketball, and yeah, my my best friend probably growing up was uh, Jen Bruno, who lived across the street from me, and we played sports all the time. And she was so good uh, at basketball and softball, and and she was like Miss Illinois softball her senior year of high school, and went on to a uh, play at DePaul University, which was a great softball school, great sports school, but I love sports growing up. And so any chance I, I could get, we would be out there playing football or baseball or anything like that. Yeah, for sure. Now, you have a sibling? I have two. I have a brother, Mike, and a sister, Michelle. And they are, um, my sister's two years older, my brother's seven. And my brother and sister, even though they're five years apart, they were born on the same day. Wow. Five years apart. Yeah. And when, and, were, and when were you born? Well, I was born uh, in March, March 14th, and my brother and sister were May 16th. So it was easy to remember wow. their birthday. And they're they're back, they're still in, in outside of Chicago in Illinois. So they they never they never moved from that area. But I had to I had to leave the winters. It was just too brutal for me. So you moved to I moved to LA and I've been in Los Angeles now about seven years, but for, oh, I don't know, 45, was it 45 years of my life? I'm trying to think of how old I am now. Let's see. Now I'm 50. You're old. Yeah. I'm I'm very old. I'm very old. And there, there are, there are a couple of improvisers. I'm not going to say who they are, but there's a couple of improvisers that I think to myself, well, as long as they're still improvising, I'm still going to do it. So as long (laughs) as there are some folks, but yeah, we moved, we moved, uh, um, we moved out to LA to get to the warm weather and it was great. I absolutely love it. Been here about seven years. You know, I was talking to Randy Newman one day and I told him, you know, I really love LA and all of a sudden he wrote a song based on what I shared with him. So that Randy. Yeah, I know you're good friends with him and I know he refuses to give you credit for that song, but that was really yours. Yeah, you also wrote, I mean, you, a lot of the things you say, Randy Newman turns into songs. 
Yeah. One time, I, one time I said to him, Randy, listen, you've got a friend. No matter what happens, you've got a friend in me. Oh, that would be a good title. Yeah. Oh, wait was. a minute. It was. It, it was. was. Right. So going back to your childhood a little bit um, now with your. Brother- yes. Yes. Cannot get there enough. Cannot yeah. explore it. enough. <laughs> so let's go right back. Yes. Well, you know, as a psychotherapist, it's very important for me to understand the dynamics if I don't know them already. So with them being older than you, did they form a little bond or did they play with you at all? No, well, because like a toy, did they play with you like a toy? Yeah, they put me in a box and locked me up and then I'd come out every six or seven days and uh, they called me Mr. Junior Potato Head. So that was my nickname, which made sense. Um, they, my brother was kind of at a point where he was more out of the house as I grew up because of the age thing. He was seven years older. So, you know, when I was in high school, he had already uh, he was either graduating college or already out of college. And so he had started his own life at that point. And so I think my sister and I were closer than my brother and I growing up. Uh huh. Okay. And has she ever taken an improv class with you? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, so, no, 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 no. So now when you were little, when you weren't outside playing sports, d- did you read a bunch as a kid? Did you like books at all? Uh, I did until it kind of got um, beaten out of me by the uh, American educational system. When I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I loved reading and I would sit there and I would, during recess, I would read encyclopedias and I just loved learning. And, and then eventually I stopped kind of showing the knowledge I had. I, st- I stopped like it you would get made fun of or even from the teachers. And so I really held back on any of that and lost a little bit of the love of learning because of the um, consequence I felt, which was might've been in my head, but also, you know, when you're growing up, I think I, I was very sensitive. So I wanted to fit in. I wanted to have friends and anything that took me away from having friends, I'd hide and put aside. So if the learning set me off as someone different or it's like, because I was promoted a grade in school when I was young. So I was shortest. I was the smallest. I, I went to a school that was different from my neighborhood friends. So I felt like I didn't quite belong because as I got older, the, the public schools got worse and worse. And so my parents would send me to private schools and they wouldn't, we never went on vacation. We barely survived, but they put the money into education. Like we, we, wow. we there were days where it was like, oh, we're not sure what we're going to do. Or my parents would get a second job or, I mean, it was just, it wasn't the easiest growing up, but they put all the money. They said, education is the thing. So that all the money that they had, they went into this education. And I remember I graduated from, uh, from both eighth, when I graduated eighth grade and when I graduated high school, my present was, they go, your present was your education. So I didn't have like a graduation present. So, but it, so I was, uh, I was a little bit of a, I don't know where I fit in as a kid because my friends went to a different school. I was younger and shorter and very small until I graduated high school. I was very short uh, and very small. So I, I kind of was, trying to survive and navigate that system, which I did. I went to a, 
I went to a Christian reformed grade school in high school and they taught things like if you married someone who's Catholic, you're going to hell. Oh my gosh. Uh, people don't. Oh yeah. People don't work on Sundays because that's the Lord's day. And how dare you? Like it was kind of Baptist. If you know, American Baptist, it was along those lines, but, but worse, a lot worse. And so I, my best friend at the time with was Catholic and I was like, well, my best friend's pretty great. So, so I really didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. And it wasn't until I got into college that I really came into my own. I really felt confident, but up until that point, it was, I didn't feel like I was a part of something. Sports gave me in my, in my neighborhood, sports was the one thing that I felt pretty competent at and had fun. And like, we bonded over that. So I was thankful for that growing up. Wow. Now, being a small person, as you said, um, did you start developing a sense of humor and joking around to compensate at all? Or, Well, before we go on to that, Margo, please diagnose my problem from what I just told you oh, okay. about that childhood trauma. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, so I think humor is something I share with my dad for sure. And my mom, I think my mom was pretty funny in, in her way, my dad and his, and my dad used to wake me up on Sundays at like nine and 10 o'clock, because that's when the public's, um, the public station, which was WTTW in Chicago, it was, it was public television. Um, they would show things like my two Ronnie's and, uh, faulty towers and all oh, these BBC yeah. comedies. And he would wake me up to watch it with him. And I would understand a little bit of it, but watching him laugh, uh -huh. I love that. I love seeing my dad laugh. And so I think there's a combination of loving that. And then also, oh, if I can make people laugh, it will keep the peace. <laughs> and I felt that applied to the family dynamic as well as like your social dynamic. And so I felt, okay, there are moments where I can try to, lessen the stress that's going on right. with humor now i wouldn't do that i wasn't a class clown no but i might have been the guy that might have whispered something under my breath in the situation but i was definitely not an attention-seeking kid in school i just uh -huh. wanted to keep my head down uh and i think that's a that's that's a, a pattern for my life like if you know me outside of improv like when i was when i was in my 20s and i was working temp jobs or jobs at restaurants or whatever i people couldn't believe that i was a performer because that was not to me the place to perform the place to perform right. was on a stage or yes. in a rehearsal yes. so but i did learn like the humor can can kind of diffuse situations so yeah. anytime that i could pull that out especially in my family dynamic anytime it could lessen the tension that might have popped up between people it's like that's the time to use it so it sounds like you had just a really supportive, loving and nurturing family, but there was tension at times, right? There was tension and maybe some disagreements or. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it's, it seems like pretty fairly regular for families. And, yeah. you know, my, my parents would come and support me in whatever and my brother and sister and whatever we did so there'd be times where my dad was working you know hundreds of miles away he was an iron worker and he would come back to watch us in a baseball game he'd drive hours wow. to see yeah. yeah or they'd come they come to my shows and and they came to my first improv show which was 
at a place that's no longer there. It's Second City Northwest. So Second City's a sketch and improv theater, big in Chicago. And a lot of people have come out of it that are, are fairly successful. And, and they had a satellite theater in the suburbs. And there's one called Second City Northwest. And that's where I started taking classes. And I was driving up. My parents said, here, Merry Christmas. We think you'd like improv classes. And I didn't know anything about improv, really. I'm from Chicago. Didn't know anything about it. I kind of knew Second right. City. Right. And so I was I was taking these classes. And, and my parents would drive to see these shows I would do. And the first show I ever did, we played a game called Day in the Life. And it's uh -huh. you ask an audience member about their day and then you replay it and you heighten situations about it and you you goof off on some things. And and the the guy had gone fishing on Lake Michigan. And so when we were replaying it, uh, I came out as the fish and I got <laughs> caught by my friend Ed Dassey, who reeled me in on stage and started whacking me with a bat. And it was you heard the laughter and it's like, oh, my goodness, this is. I love this. I, all these people are enjoying themselves and we're having fun. And, and can I, can I do this for a, what is, what is the next step in this? And, and my parents would, and my family would come see shows. And every time they'd ask for a suggestion in the audience, they would say, do the fish thing. Like they would ask <laughs> to see the thing I had done for like a year. And I had to say, it was improvised. We can't quit. <laughs> uh, please stop asking for the fish thing in this show. But they were so supportive. They, my dad said, you know, I don't care what you do. As long as you do the best and you're happy. He's like, I, I don't care. And so like when I first started taking classes, it was like the attraction to someone like me and a lot of people I find in my generation of improvisers, it was a dead end job. It wasn't going anywhere. There was no pressure to do it as a career. So we love that. It was like, great, dead end job. And then you started taking more classes and I took classes um, all throughout the city in Chicago. And I remember talking to a teacher, Fran Adams, I had who was a second city teacher and I said can you make a living doing this and she's like well I am but I don't I didn't realize all that went into it you just right. are like oh because there was no at that time there were five or six jobs on the main stage of second city that paid wow. and then a couple more on the ETC stages that I think you still had to have a second job at that time for those stages so there wasn't really improv careers it was sketch comedy like there weren't that many that provided you an income. So, so I eventually just took classes for the fun of it, but the pressure was off of actually doing anything. So you weren't one of those people that was trying to get on SNL. You no. were just taking the classes for the love of it. Now, were you in college for a little bit? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, even to this day, I've never had a desire actually to be on second city or SNL. I liked the group I was with. And if the group I was with, when I first started, if they continued on, I would have, if they said like, let's go take a salsa dancing class, I'd be like, yeah, it was the group <laughs> of people. It wasn't the idea of you're going to go into this group and create material with these other people. I didn't want that. I wanted the team. I wanted the team that stayed together. And so my class was, um, it was my senior year of college is when I started taking improv classes and I would drive up three hours from where I was going to school to Second City Northwest in Rolling Meadows, wow. Illinois. And 
on a Saturday, it was noon to three. And I would take this class and sometimes I drive home or I drive back to school right afterwards. This is my last semester. So when other people are like partying and doing whatever they wanted to do before going out into the world, I was taking improv classes and it was a highlight. of my, I couldn't wait. Highlight of my week. Seeing these people taking these classes, learning from these teachers like I just enjoyed it so much. That is commitment. How about the people that you played with? Are any of them still doing improv? The people that you really would have taken salsa classes with? Well, yeah. Um, let's see. Liz Allen, who is still active yeah. as an yeah. improv teacher and performer. Um, Bob Dassey, who is doing, I mean, I'll see him do improv. He, he's in a group called Dasariski with Craig Kikowski and Rich Tellerico. And, and, oh, yeah. But, so they, he still, he still does shows. Um, uh, and then two of the people in our group, uh, oh, and then Ed Dassey, who's Bob's brother is, I, he doesn't perform anymore, but the three of us still stay in touch. And then the two other people in our, our group passed away. So oh. Liz and Bob and I still perform Liz, Bob and I, and Ed still are in contact. And the other two people, passed away one was a guy named ed brown who uh became like a very close friend of mine and he was this big burly six foot 300 pound ex-merchant marine chef who landed in ohio got off his boat and drove to chicago to start classes like drove to chicago and he and i we're 10 years apart and became huge um, friends. Loved, loved that guy. He was hilarious. He did. He was, he blew my mind. There's something I'll never forget. He did. So we, our group was called Waka Malaka and we really prided ourselves in playing smart and not even swearing on stage, like mm -hmm. playing smart. And you, there was a game, there's a game party quirks. You get a quirk from the audience. There's a host who goes out of the room. The rest of the cast gets these quirks like your hands are made of spaghetti or thinks she's Madonna, things like that. Then the host comes in and has to guess through clues what your thing is. And so Ed got a pet peeve of picking your nose <laughs> and he comes out and he goes, oh, it's the new Cosmopolitan magazine. Do I want this one or this one? And he was using pick as select his nose instead of picking. And that blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, this is a different level. It can, we can get suggestions and change it into something smart. So it doesn't even matter what the suggestion is. We can take the most inappropriate suggestions and turn it into something that everyone can enjoy. And you could feel the, the release of tension in the air when he did that, because the audience was expecting one thing, maybe nervous that he was going to do the the obvious and he switched it. So I love that guy. And then um, Judy Fabjance was a teacher for 20 years at Second City and she had um, she had breast cancer and she uh, passed away a few years ago. But she was a very active um, uh, participant in improv. And I look at like Bob and Liz and Judy and I and I'm like, there was something in our training that made us want to become teachers and share this with as many people as we know and to have this group first mentality because the four of us always when we're teaching was like group first like 
that's our that's our jam. It's like it's about this ensemble. Always focus on the ensemble. Don't worry about your thing. You'll get it from the group and take care of each other. So it's really I, I was very blessed to be a part of that group. And it's it's fascinating to me of like why we all decided to go into teaching and sharing this when not a lot of groups make that choice. Oh, that's inspiring. Yeah, it was oh, yeah. it was so you felt like this is, I finally feel, I look around, Judy Fabjans when she started was in high school still. Ed was a hardened merchant marine in his thirties. Liz was a, an engineer. Bob and Ed were computer dudes. And so you were like, I can, this is a group of people I'd never necessarily hang out with in life, but right. we come together and we're creating some really cool stuff and we respect and love each other. And so it was like, oh, this is where I belong. I, This is the place. This this group of people here, these misfits, I dig these people. Yeah. This, these are my tribe. And so that's that's the power for me. And that's why I stuck with it is because it was people like that. So you, you described Ed's uh, picking the nose and that's playing to the top of your intelligence. And yes. It's so, and that's the thing with this group is, and a lot of groups that I played with early on, especially was like, you challenge, you didn't say, hey, Margo, play smarter. You didn't do that. You just watched other people, you watched other people play smart and you're like, ooh, that's what I want to do. So you saw them play to the height of their intelligence. They didn't tell you to do it. And so you went, oh, I wow, that person just went off on all of the amendments to the Constitution. I'm going to go home and read about them. So next time it pops up, I don't feel I don't have enough knowledge of that situation. Right. So right. I think yeah. I think we, when you're a younger improviser, you tend to want to lessen the stakes. You tend to want to go for the safest choice of like, well, if I actually show, if I show my finger in my nose, it's going to get a response. Like, absolutely it will. Is there a smarter, is there a, a bigger reward than that one? Can you go past that to a bigger treasure? And sometimes no, sometimes yes, but it did. I remember playing with, with them and it was like, oh, this raises the game and now I can use my intelligence and not feel bad. I love that story. Now, going back to your childhood again, um, <laughs> because I'm still working on a differential <laughs> diagnosis, as we say. In the Thank field. you. Okay. Um, did you like going to movies or if, if your family didn't have a lot of resources, maybe you didn't go to movies that much. Your dad was showing you these British comedies. Did he turn you on to Monty Python? Yeah, he did. Um, I never, I, I was never a huge fan of movies. Like uh -huh. I like them. I like watching them, but it wasn't like, Oh, this is, the movies are it for me. I, I wasn't that. What I liked, I liked groups of people joking around and laughing. That's what I like. So instead of watching it, I like to do it. So yeah. it's like, oh, instead of watching a movie, let's let's shoot a movie. Let's make a movie. And that to me was from a young kid all the way. That's what I like. Even now it's like, let's do stuff. Like that's what I get enjoyment out of is the actual doing. So you know, my dad might record us um, playing a sport and then play it back and we watch it on a, uh, you know, on an eight millimeter. And we might watch that as he, he shot it against our wall. And it's like, oh, okay. 
I like that. I was there. I remember that we watched that or he would show some. Uh, the big thing for me was comedy albums, like listening yeah. to comedy. Yes. That was so I listened to Burns and Allen. I listened to Fibber McGee and Molly. He would play tapes or eight track cassettes, y'all. of that. <laughs> and my brother would play Steve Martin, the jerk or comedy ain't pretty or any of these these things. You know, my dad would play Mom's Mabley and he you didn't, um, it didn't matter what it was, if it was funny to him and he wanted to share it. And so it didn't matter if, if it was a man, woman, African-American, white, whatever it was, it's like, I think this is funny. He play this and you would get enjoyment out of it. And so, uh, looking at different opportunities to, um, fill your comedy knowledge and your reservoir and like, yes, I'm going to watch this. I might not quite get it, but I want to see what's something in it I do relate to. And then you watch it later in life and you get a different, same with cartoons. You watch some of these Looney Tunes cartoons and you're like, oh my God, as a kid, I didn't understand this reference. And this is pretty, this is a pretty uh, uh, deep reference here. So it was the introduction to a group of people laughing. That was to me, it's like, we're sharing in this fun. And whether it's, singing a silly song or just doing bits or as as kids we're all improvisers we hang out with our friends and we improv right, we, we right. just don't know it's improv exactly exactly I used to do little shows in my backyard they mm. were basically improvised and my brother collected the money and became a financial genius in later life so I I, I he owes you he I owes you Marco with interest with interest yeah you're right with interest <laughs> So there's, um, there's, there's nothing like making your family laugh or, or nothing no, like making no. those close to you laugh or the ones where you're like, I respect this person and to watch them, to watch them laugh or, or do a parody song and see if I remember I had a friend uh, and I wrote this parody song to uh, there was this Chicago Bears Super Bowl shuffle song, uh, which was back in 1984 or five. And I, I wrote this parody it was just kind of singing it on top of the record i'd play the record then i'd sing my lyrics and my friend would just be like you're so funny and that validation of not yes. even like you yes. to do it for a living just the validation and i remember my my friend leanne janick and i worked at a bank i um was going to a community college uh because i went to marquette in milwaukee for a year then i went to a community college then i ended up at uh, illinois state and Leanne and I were working at this bank as tellers and we'd be in the drive-thru and she and I would just do things that would get you fired now. But at the time we thought we would, she would take all of my pens and put them in one of those canisters that the mnemonic canisters that like, um, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> is it mnemonic? Is that what the right word? Maybe or plutonic. I don't know, but you put yeah. your deposits in there and the checks and stuff. Put your deposit. So she put all of my pens and she would <laughs> hit the microphone and tell the customer, please take the pens, have a nice day. And then duck down in the drive-thru. <laughs> so then all my pens would be gone. And then I would sense that. So we, so the fact making friends laugh, making yes. those you love yes. laugh, that's what it's about for me. So like, although I'm, I'm very lucky to be where I am, it didn't start as I'm going to go to second city then we go to snl then i'm gonna go to movies i didn't right, right, I, right. I still don't care about it. i'm like i want to do stuff with people i dig that's what i want to yeah. do and if it's for no money okay 
And you've made some movies too. I've seen your I movies. Have. Yep. I have. Yep. I made two that are um, improvised dialogues, like a scripted storyline, but improvised dialogue. Uh, and it's features a lot of like some of the top improvisers and some of them people will never ever hear of because they just love improvising, but they're not in a desire to get fans. But they're really, improvisers have a really good way of taking natural dialogue and making it sound like it's coming from them instead of a script. And so sometimes you get a good result by letting them improvise the dialogue. And we'll tell them that it's like some of the scripts, we, we did a movie about these two brothers running a restaurant and uh, we had two bartenders who were like two of the best improvisers on the planet, uh, Rex Graff and Bill Baylor. And the script just said, Rex and Bill do bits. And that was it. And we didn't say any dialogue, any direction at all for them. And they were, they stole the show because they work together. They support each other. When you watch good improvisers set each other up for knocking it out and, and doing well, there's nothing better. And I've never seen an improv scene or show where I'm like, I wish they would have argued more. I mean, <laughs> they could have really discussed money a lot more in this fictitious scene. So when you don't have that and you have people play each other, anything can happen. And when you have a group of people that come together for a cause or a purpose, whatever it is, miracles happen. Yeah. I like that. Miracles happen. And that sense of supporting each other. I've been in a, a few troops where there wasn't that kind of support. It was, you know, I'm going to be the funniest, the wittiest, you know, do the most pratfalls or whatever. I think that's the word. And um, it's so authentic what you do, Jay. It's very oh, authentic and very real. And that's why I, you know, stick with you is one of the reasons. And, you know, also... <laughs> Also, because you think I'm funny. So that makes me laugh, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. You, you are. And it's like when people are themselves and they're able to be genuine and vulnerable and be that quirky person, it's it's not a I'm laughing at you. It's a this sound is coming from joy of experiencing you being you. I'm watching you be you. And it's like there's nothing there's nothing funnier than that. And it's when, you know, effort, I forget where I heard it, but somebody said effort's ugly on stage. And it's true. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. When you watch people try and they're making this effort, it's like it's coming from a good place. But when you can get to the point where none of that matters and you're just like, I'm just going to hang out with this person in this scene. It doesn't matter what we're doing. I'm just going to watch them and react to what they're saying in a positive way it will always be enjoyable. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the gifts you have as a teacher. You help bring out the authenticity and genuineness of your students. And of course, it's a safe environment too. So we've got to say that. But um, yeah, it's it's just fabulous. Mm -hmm. now, now, what year did you start um, improv? Do you remember? Um, the year was 1812. <laughs> oh, no, it was my first class was um, it started January 1992. Wow. And it was probably the first Jan the first Saturday. And, you know, I <clears throat> I was going to school for economics and video production, video, radio production. Uh -huh. And uh 
the 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 what I was trained on went obsolete the day I graduated. Almost literally, they switched formats in the industry. So like I had knowledge, but I didn't have it on what the industry standard was. So it was like pretty much a, a waste. But I remember before I took improv classes, we one I was um the host of a and and one of the producers of a film review show at college. And wow. I, I got this, it was called film speak. And I remember I had just, I was a C, I was a junior and I just gotten into figuring out, I wanted to do video production and TV. And I'm like, that sounds interesting. And I went and they said, well, there are, there's the news show, there's a sports show, and then there's a film review show. So I'm, so they're like, go check it out, see what you want to do. There's different crew positions. So I went and I was in the control room of the director and I feel bad now, but there was a host who was so bad. Like they couldn't <laughs> read. They read so badly off the teleprompter and I was trying not to laugh, but I was giggling. And one, and then finally something happened that I laughed out loud. And again, I had never been in this control room. I don't know any of these people who are putting on this show. They're all students. Um, and there's a student director and I'm, I'm like, ah! and I, <laughs> I cover my mouth. And then the guy goes, do you think you could do better? And I go, yeah. And he goes, all right, come next week. And so I went the next week and I brought a, a guy I was living with who wasn't even going to the school, but he was my age. He, we were all living in this house together. Uh -huh. And we showed up and we ended up being the host for this show. And we would come out every week. And so one week we didn't get the feel. It was Field of Dreams was the, was the movie. We didn't right. get the clips. So we didn't have the clips for Field of Dreams. And so I said, why don't we just shoot something? And I, I improvised this <laughs> monologue that was like the Kevin Costner in the movie. He plays a baseball player. And he talks about the things he loves is like the small of a woman's back and the, the crack of a ball and this, all of that stuff. So I said, why don't just we'll recreate that and I'll try to do as much as I can, but then I'll just make stuff up. And so I just improvised this monologue about that. And we showed that as if it was the clip for the movie. And, and then we <laughs> ended up doing one once a semester, we would do like a parody show where we would just have ideas and just great. Let's shoot it like no. There was no editorial control of this. It was just like, grab your camera. I got an idea. Let's shoot it. And we would put it out once a year. And nobody nobody really watched these shows, we found out, because it was cable TV. And in the dorm, they didn't have cable. So none of the students really watched this show. And very few people did it because it was like on cable access. So nobody watched it. <laughs> And then we realized the first time we put it out, it's like, oh, the teachers weren't even watching it. So then once a semester, we would do like a parody show. And that was the beginning of like my improv um, career. And then yeah. the next year is when I started taking classes. So then I was like, oh, this is what I've been doing. Now I just, there are games which are fun to play. I had seen Whose Lines It Anyway, I think at that point on TV or maybe shortly after. So I started understanding it more, the British, the British version right, right. of Whose Lines. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I started playing some of those games. And then the teachers inspired this love. And yeah, so that was the early, early 90s. And then after 
after I took a class, after I went through the program, it was like five levels. And at that program, you did improv the first three levels. Then the fourth and fifth, you started writing sketch comedy to do a second city style review. And right. we did we did our student show, which was supposed to be three nights. Uh, and then the producer said, do you want to extend your show? So we did our student show for a year on Second City stages every Monday for a year, over wow. a year. And then wow. then the producer said, do you want to do a best of? So we were then doing a best of show of the Second City archive materials from people like Kenny Campbell and Dan Castellaneta and Stephen Colbert and Amy Sedaris and Nia Vardalos. We would do a, a best of their material. So I got to learn after doing our sketches, which were good, I got to learn how great sketches were written and yeah. I got the best education because you would read the sketches, then do them. And you're like, okay, I get now how, how to write a really good sketch, what the process is to do that. We learned what parts were improvised to write it, what parts were already written. So it was, it was a tremendous over two year experience. And then um bob was in our group and he said we got to take a class from this guy del close downtown and it's like all right i don't know what a del close is and i don't know what this improv olympics you talk about is but you're doing it i'm doing it <clears throat> and then we took a class with with sharna at, at a place called io or improv olympic at the time or improv olympics with an x it was shortly known as and that was a theater that started with david shepherd and yes. sharna and it was a it was supposed to be um like games like a competition Olympic right. competition of games right. based on kind of theater sports stuff and so you know David Shepard was instrumental in IO and Second City the formation of both of those theaters and he gets overlooked a little bit in the yes, history so yeah so yeah did, so I started did you ever meet David I did I I I got his I read about him in something wonderful right away I think is the book the is that the Janet Coleman book that I think that's the book and it talked about the formation of Second City and I I I think I called information and got his phone number and I <laughs> called him <clears throat> and at that time he said I'm he was trying to create improv as a neighborhood like a board game where you take on other families in the in your in your living room it was like living room theater and it would be, he saw it as like a board game night for neighborhoods where they come over and do improv. And so I was fascinated. I'm talking to this guy because at that point I had started reading all these books about improv and I read Impro by John Stone and, and Spolin books. And, and I read this something wonderful right away. And I was like, and he was, he said, I'm coming to Chicago. I think he was living on the East coast. He goes, I'm coming to Chicago. So we came to Chicago and we had like written letters too. I don't know where I've got a letter somewhere from oh, David Shepard. Oh. He comes out to Chicago. Now here I am thinking this guy is, he doesn't have time for somebody like me. And I said, I'm doing a show with comedy sports if you're available. So he came to see a comedy sports show I was in. Then afterwards, he's like, so what do you want to do? So I like walked around Chicago with David Shepard hanging out. And I didn't know what to do after a certain point. I'm like, and it, it seemed like he didn't necessarily, he either didn't have a place that he had to go to, or he just wanted to spend time or what it was. But I got to spend a night with this dude walking around and picking his brain and talking to him about like the early days. And I was oh. just so blessed, but I, I reached. And I remember telling friends, I'm like, David Shepard's coming to this show. 
a lot of them didn't know or they're like, okay, right, whatever, right. man. Like, but it, for me, it was the thrill to meet this guy who was, had to uh, be in his seventies or eighties uh, at that point. Yeah. I got a letter somewhere. I don't, somewhere that we wrote back and forth and he wanted to get it started and he was looking for anyone to help him get that idea started. That's beautiful. I hope you can find that letter sometime, Jay, because that would be oh, fun. Our friend Michael Golding would really love that too. I'm sure he's an architect. Oh, yeah for David and his wonderful work. Wow. That's amazing. It's, it's so amazing that you think there was a time where you could just look someone up, reach out to him. Yeah. Call yeah, him, yeah. Write him. I might've written him for, maybe I got his address first. I don't know. There was an address and a call. I remember sitting in my apartment in Chicago on the phone to David Shepard and like losing my mind and just like, Oh yeah. Uh-huh. And then he, he came out and hung out. So I was very, I was very lucky. I, I've been lucky to meet a couple of like the, the people you read about and a lot of them have like lived up to being nice people. I haven't had, there are very few people that I've had bad experiences with. And there are a lot more people that I've had great experiences with. And you're just like, this person is so giving and they're so caring and, and they're just, they want to share this. And I think those are the people that are successful in this, in this field that the ones that want to share it and the ones that reach like what you're doing and you discount what you do a lot. And it's like, no, you're, you're sharing what you do with people who need it. They need this moment of love and, and happiness and play. And we don't have moments that we go, we should play. We don't get as adults. It gets right. taken out of us early on. It gets early taken on. out of us. It's frivolous. It's not, it's like, it's the most important thing. We learn to create a problem solve. We learn to be a part of a group. We learn to laugh and have fun and we achieve a common goal. Like it is things that you need in life for sure. But I, w I wish everyone would have more play, more yes, designed yes. play. Set a time aside to be like, this is the time I'm going to play, whatever that is for you. Exactly. Exactly. You know, Jay, this might be a good time to stop part one and then resume again with part two of improv. A two-parter? Jay Suko. Oh, yes, my dear. Okay. Oh, wow. A two-parter. Yeah. Perfect. So we'll take a, a little break and get a glass of water if you need it, or, you know, maybe a corn dog, whatever's handy. And um, we'll stop right now. If that's There's okay. going to be something. There's going to be something very scandalous we'll talk about in part two, but you got to tune in. Okay, that's it from Jay, and we'll see you in part two.